We're uh, continuing in our identity series, and we're going to be talking today about what it means to live fearlessly. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the, uh, under the chair in front of you, most likely, or you can follow along on the screen. We all know that fear has uh, positive and negative aspects. There's healthy fear and there's hurtful fear. Healthy fear keeps us from doing stupid things, keeps us from doing things that are misguided or dangerous or even life-threatening. Hurtful fear can cause us to live paralyzed, um, keep us from stepping out or stretching our faith, uh, keep us from God's best. And the, the problem that the Bible addresses with fear is that all too often you and I fear all the wrong things. We fear everything but God. And Scripture says a proper or a healthy perspective on fear is that we fear the Lord and reverentially and and have a proper awe and respect for Him because when we properly see His righteousness, His holiness, His omnipotence, lesser things have a way of coming into perspective. Psalm 34 is one of my favorite psalms, and the whole psalm talks about the fear of the Lord. And the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. I think of the Psalm 23, I will, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He closes Psalm 34 and verse 11, Come you children and listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. A few Psalms later in Psalm 46, it's really a picture of when we have that proper, appropriate fear of Lord, of, of God and other things come into focus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Psalm 46 is a picture of things completely changing, the world turning upside down, all hell breaking loose, and yet the people of God are steadfast and they're secure and they're at peace and they experience no fear because their lives are built upon the solid rock of Christ. And God is their immovable rock. Later in Psalm 118, verse 4, the psalmist says, Let all who fear the Lord repeat this phrase, His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so therefore I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? I love that. When we understand God and who He is, and when we understand His power and protection and the vastness, the greatness of who He is, then other things really 
come into perspective. And we're set free. We're released from worrying, from fretting, from living life with anxiety. Knowing that what can, what can anyone or anything in this world really do to me? My life is in his hands. Well, I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 today, and I want to look at verses 1 to 14. 2 Timothy toward the end of the New Testament. This is what Paul writes, 2 Timothy 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, his son in the faith, his spiritual son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I might be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh, some translations say fan into flame, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Therefore, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. I see in our passage at least five things that Paul is challenging Timothy to remember. <clears throat> things that are easy to forget when we get in the midst of the fire, of, of the, the trial, or the circumstance that tests our faith. But five things that we are to continually affirm and to hold on to as true that will help us to not live in fear. And the first is found in verse 7. Fear, guilt, and shame are not from God. Now I want to qualify that because fear is, as I said, often misplaced. We fear everything but God. And God is the one person who we should fear. And God brings all of the fear into perspective. If you read the Old Testament, fear is mentioned some 250 times, and many of those are commands to fear God and to have a healthy respect and awe for Him. There's not a prophet or a man of God or woman of God who was ever in God's presence who was not fearful. It's an awe-inspiring, terrifying thing to be in the presence of the living God. But God does not want us to live in a place of fear, guilt, and shame. 
meaning that that is not the way that God motivates us. There are a lot of ways that we motivate people, sometimes by punishment or manipulation or fear, but studies have shown time and time again the most powerful motivator in all the world is love. And I believe that God uses love to motivate his people to do the things he's called us to do. So while it's healthy and appropriate to have a fear of the Lord, God does not want us living in a place of fear and guilt and shame, because oftentimes that's the fear, guilt, and shame that we've received from the world or from the enemy. And he says to Timothy, in verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice or of fear. That's not from him, but rather a power of power and love and discipline. Some translations say a sound mind for discipline. And we know from Scripture that a sound mind comes from being fixed on God's truth. Coming from meditating upon God's truth and living by that truth. So fear isn't rejecting or denouncing all fear. It's lifting up a reverential fear and awe for God, an appropriate fear. The Apostle Paul writes this, uh, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter writes this in his first uh, letter in the first chapter, beginning in verse 17. Peter says, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter actually says, while you're here on earth, conduct yourselves in fear. Live in fear. Not walking around all jittery, wondering when God's going to slap us on the side of the head, but having a healthy respect and awe for God and for his, his commands, being obedient to him. All other fears come into perspective when we do that. Jesus himself said in the Gospels, Luke 12 is an example of this, verse 4. He said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I warn you, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's proper fear. Not earthly authorities or rulers or principalities, but the one who rules it all, the whole universe. That's proper fear. Paul would say in Philippians 2 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So when I talk about fear and shame and guilt aren't from God, I'm not saying all fear. I'm separating that. I'm saying God does not motivate primarily through fear and guilt and shame. He uses things just as he uses everything to work together for good, for his plans and his purposes. But he primarily motivates through love. And oftentimes if we are living in a place of constant fear and constant guilt and constant shame, it's a sign that we've received a false identity from the world or from the evil one. And we need to remind ourselves of God's truth. The kind of fear that Paul is talking about in our passage is the fear that keeps us from doing what is right. That keeps us from stepping out in faith. Paul also wrote in Romans 8.15, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So 
knowing that we're unconditionally loved, we don't have to live in fear of whether we're accepted or rejected. We know that God loves us eternally and unconditionally through Jesus Christ and Christ's merits. There's nothing wrong with feeling fear and guilt and shame over our sin. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, that the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a difference. God can use guilt and shame and sorrow and fear to motivate us to repent and to get right with him. But the sorrow that the world produces leads to death. And that's what we're talking about today, the, the negative things that we receive from either the enemy or from the world that keep us from focusing on the truth that God has for us. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think of parables or stories like the prodigal son. And I'm always struck by the fact that when the, the wayward son returns home after he squandered his father's inheritance, after he's lived sinfully for himself and come to the end of himself, that the father doesn't berate him with lectures. You know, like, all right, now, no more of that stupid stuff. If you want to stay around here, you know. But he just showers him with love and with grace and forgiveness. Clothes him with a new robe and puts a ring on his finger. And it's, it's a reminder of who he is, his identity in terms of his relationship with the Father, rather than the sinful identity that he's been living. And so, again, God may use fear and guilt and shame, but not a place that we live, but a place that brings us to repentance so that we can live in freedom and in the new identity that he has for us. The second thing that I see in our passage is we need to remember that our calling is not based upon our own competence. Our calling is not based upon our own competence. He says in verse 9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all of eternity. What a relief that God does not call us based upon our ability. You know, there's good days, there's bad days. You know, there's days where we feel like, yeah, I'm I'm pretty smart, I'm pretty with it. And there's days where we just feel like a miserable failure. And thank goodness that our calling is not based upon our competence but upon God's purpose and grace, which he has predestined and foreordained for all of eternity. I think about verses like Ephesians 2.10 that remind us that we are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like God's got a plan for us. He's got a purpose. We just need to walk down that road. We need to go through the open doors that he provides. And the success and the resources are, are his, not ours. Well, thirdly, Paul says life's greatest fear has been removed. In verse 10, the greatest fear of all is what? Death. Death is like the, the underlying fear of everything in this world. And Paul says in verse 10, Our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel message. For whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
life in Christ. We have life and immortality through the gospel and through the cross. I love what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Christ, likewise also partook of the same. He's speaking of the incarnation. Since you and I were created with flesh and bones and a human body, at a point in time, God sent Jesus to take on human flesh through the incarnation that he might identify with us. And it goes on to say in Hebrews 2 that through death, Christ might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is Satan, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Prior to coming to God, we lived in death and fear and were slaves of death and fear with no hope, no glimmer of hope on the horizon. That was our destiny. That was where we lived. And God sent Christ to render death powerless and free us from that mindset and from that that pattern of repeating harmful things. Been reading through the study how study, throughout this identity study that a number of biological studies have have, have uh, proved out that when we live in fear, we're actually using the least part of our brain. That people that live in a constant state of fear or anxiety are not drawing upon the higher powers and resources of the mind that actually are stunning their growth because they're just focused on a a small area. And on the other hand, people who live in peace, it leads to growth and development because they're freed up to not be fixated on this fear or this, this worry or this anxiety. And I was thinking, you know, the opposite of fear is faith. We're not talking about the absence of fear. The absence of fear is to not have a pulse. You know, all of us fear. But the opposite of fear is faith. And faith causes us to to push through fear and get to the other side and experience all that God has for us. Belief or faith helps us to take advantage of things that are true and experience God's best, or we can die in things that are false. We can die in disbelief, refusing to access and enjoy and experience all that God has for us. Well, fourthly, Paul says in verse 11, Don't forget who appointed you. He said, I've been appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And the question I have for you is, what has God appointed you to do? What has God appointed you to do? And it's not as simple as, well, I'm a carpenter. I'm an electrician. I'm, you know, a teacher. Because oftentimes what God has appointed you to do is not your profession. It's not your career. I meet so many people that are miserable in their job. It's just a paycheck. It's a way that they provide for their family. But it doesn't draw upon their gifts or their abilities. They don't feel fulfilled. They don't feel like they're accomplishing a grander, eternal purpose. They hate what they do. And so don't confuse your identity and your calling with necessarily your work. The question is, what has God appointed you to do? What gifts and abilities has God given you for his kingdom? What passion has he put upon your heart? What, what constantly gets stirred within you? 
And are you acting upon that, or have you sat on that because, oh, that's crazy. I would never do that. That's illogical. That doesn't make sense. Or that would be too costly. That would call for a lot of change. So often we don't follow through on those things. But Paul says, I've been appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. I think oftentimes we're like Moses, and we're like, God, you got the wrong guy. Use my brother, you know. Someone said, you know, here am I, send him, you know, kind of the Isaiah 6 thing. You know, I came into the presence of the Lord, I said, here am I, send them, not me. The fact that God appointed us means that he knows we have what it takes. Because he empowers us through his Holy Spirit. He, he resources us. It's not about us to begin with. We can be successful in our calling and in our mission with his help as we are relying upon him. Well, fifthly, and last for today, he reminds us or calls us to remember that we are secure in God. Verse 12, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I love that song that we sing in Christ alone. The, the lyrics, a part of that, say, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That's security. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, John chapter 10, till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Folks, that's security. That's assurance. That's confidence to know that nothing can touch me apart from the sovereign, permissive will of God. That I am held firmly in Christ's hand. God the Father has his hand around Christ. And we are secure. That's where security comes from. This week in the video portion of our identity series, Jamie Winship challenges us with this idea. He says, the highest level of living is in places where the enemy has been defeated. So what he's saying is, the greatest experiences that you will ever have in this life is walking through places where previously the, the enemy had victory, held you, in bond, held you at bay, held you in bondage and in slavery. And now through the power of Christ, you're, you're busting through those. Because his contention is that the enemy always puts up barriers in the very places he doesn't want us to go. And yet on the very other side of fear and those barriers is God's greatest blessing. And I'm not talking about material blessing, but I'm talking about the joy and the fulfillment and the purpose and the mission that God has for us. Satan always puts up barriers where he doesn't want us to go. But if we can, through faith, push through that, we can experience the best of what God has for us and live in our true identity. So I want to finish today by giving us some action steps that also come from this text. And the first action step is found in verse 6, that we are to kindle afresh God's gift within us. Fan into flame. He says, kindle afresh, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. He said, it's the same gift that I saw in your grandmother and in your mother, and I'm convinced that it's in you as well. And the thing about God's gifts is that they have to be developed, they have to be fed, they have to be nurtured. 
And oftentimes we don't do anything with them. But, you know, being in fellowship, being in mentoring relationships, being in places where we can be encouraged, where we can draw encouragement, receive guidance, receive teaching and training. These are all ways that we can kindle afresh and fan into flame that gift that God has, has put within us. I saw in first service, I remember years ago, I read a story about a young pastor who was ready to throw in the towel, was very discouraged in his ministry, and just thought, I can't do this anymore. And he met with one of his mentors, and it was winter, and they were in this living room with a fire roaring over in the corner. And while they were talking, the mentor kind of got up quietly without saying a word and went to the fire and with the tongs took out this burning log and just set it on, on the hearth outside of the the roaring fire. And as they continued to talk, over the course of the conversation, that, that log started to kind of die and turn gray and lifeless. And then, without saying anything again, he got up again and took the log and put it back in the fire. And within minutes, it was just roaring and flaming again. And the young guy realized, that's exactly what's wrong with my life. I've taken myself out of the fire out of that place where God is developing me, out of that place where I'm encouraged and stimulated by brothers and sisters, and God is developing me and using me, and I'm isolated. I'm, I'm, dis, I'm stranded. I'm dying. I don't have any, anything feeding me. And the question is, do we allow the opportunities that God gives us to grow us and to stretch us? Or do we try and contain them? Do we try and manage our life? So it's not too disruptive, not too inconvenient, not too outside of the box. You know, if you control a fire in a fire pit or a barbecue, it'll burn as long as you feed it. But we all know forest fires just burn anything in their path. God has given us gifts, and do we let his spirit determine how that, how that will grow and burn and be used of him? Or do we try and manage it and control it? Well, secondly... A second action step is to not be ashamed of our testimony. Verse 8 and verse 12. Verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Well, why would Timothy be ashamed? Well, probably, most likely, because the critics of the gospel are saying, Wow, some God who lets your leader or your mentor rot in jail... You know, as he awaits his death, that's, oh, that's a victorious, you know, that, that doesn't sell very well. Come, follow the Lord, and you too can be chained and bound and await your death, you know. And I'm sure there was a part of that that caused Timothy to question and to wonder, what is God doing here? And the point is that fear and, and shame keep us from sharing. They cause us to doubt the power and the truth of our message. They're a subtle form of surrender of giving up. But we need to remember that our testimony is not, you know, follow Jesus and experience the abundant life. It's about not just life, just, just this life, but the life to come. I, the staff and I went to a, a breakfast this week, a pastor appreciation breakfast for pastors and ministry leaders, and Philip DeCourcy, the Scottish preacher from Orange County, was there. He was the keynote speaker, and he reminded us that as Christians, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. 
We're not fighting for a place of victory. We're fighting from a place of victory. And we need to realize in our testimony and our witness and our representation of Christ, the victory has already been secured. Christ has already accomplished that of the cross. We are fighting from a place of victory. So never be ashamed of your testimony. Never be ashamed of the gospel. Thirdly, we're to align, align ourselves with truth. Verse 13. He says, retain the same standard of truth which you have heard from me in the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. It's imperative that we maintain and retain that standard of truth that we find in Scripture that we've been taught. Changing our standard of truth, of right and wrong, is as crazy as continually pulling up anchor at sea and just drifting all over the place and not having any fixed point. It's like a company that is continually presenting a new goal or vision to its employees that's completely conflicting and contradictory to what it was last week. And people are wondering, what's, what's it going to be tomorrow? Like, this is crazy. Just every day there's a different goal, a different vision, and they all seem to not tie together. That's what happens when we don't have absolute truth, the truth of God's Word guiding us. We need to be careful that we don't make up our own truth and that we don't listen to Satan's lies and deception and buy into the truth that comes from this world and the culture in which we live. God's Word has to be our fixed point, and we need to align ourselves with truth. And finally, lastly for today, he says, guard your treasure. Guard your treasure. Verse 14 Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And I would submit that the treasure is the message of the gospel. The gospel message about Jesus, our Savior, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one that has defeated death and secured eternal life for us through the cross. That's the treasure that we guard. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't drift from that. Don't lose your confidence and conviction in that. It's the answer to eternal life. It's the secret to having a personal relationship with the living God. It's the solution to victory over sin. And it's the key to loving the unlovely and serving the unappreciative. It's everything. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. Other translations, the love of Christ controls us. And again, I would submit to you that the greatest motivator in all of the universe is love. By this, all people will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Not that we love, but he first loved us and left for us that example. By this, we know that we have come to love the Lord, that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. It's all about love. God does not use fear, guilt, and shame to motivate us. He uses love. And John would write in 1 John 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. I've heard many people take this out of context and say, therefore, we shouldn't have any fear at all. If we're really solid in the Lord, that takes away all fear. And that's not the point here. The, the point here is fear of judgment. 
If we read it in context, right before that, in verse 17, he says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. The point is, Christ takes away the fear of judgment. And we can live our lives not you know, in fear of the day when we will stand before him and give an account of the things that we have done, good or bad, but knowing that when we stand before him, we will be clothed and dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not our own filthy rags. And because of that, we can live with boldness and confidence and even expectation and excitement about that day because Christ, through the cross, has removed that fear of judgment. Let's pray.